You're listening to an Institute for Mathematical Innovation podcast, giving insight into the maths behind scientific advances and how maths can be harnessed to improve our lives and the world around us. So this is meant to be fairly relaxing, so it's serious at the same time. Uh, there's no, uh, let's say, heavy mathematics in this, in the sense I'm not going to write down uh, um, you know, complicated expressions or anything like that. I think there is some mathematical notation right towards the end, but I'm also going to show some pictures that uh, uh, John mentioned, but uh, these don't necessarily display very well on a projector, so I brought along a couple of uh, examples of just the pictures that I'm actually showing in the <coughs> lecture for you to have a look at if you want to at the end. I should say these really show a lot of detail that will not show up at all on the projectors. So, uh, if I can get this working. Oh, that's interesting. It's decided not to go forward. Ah, here we go. So you've already heard this message, but I had to sign an agreement saying that I was going to give this message to you, so I fulfilled my contract. <laughs> but only audio, right? <clears throat> Outline of talk. So in a sense, this talk is about chaos, what it is, and more importantly, what it isn't. Visualization of chaos, which you should think of in terms of visualizing very complicated things. Um, you might want to think of visualizing climate or economics. And how all this relates to mathematics and general mathematics education, which is something of interest to me, especially having worked in the US for a long time, where the general experience teaching in a state university is by the time you finish with them, most people really hate mathematics. So I actually think this is important and serious, um, and it's worth kind of saying something about. But I won't say too much, though, again. Uh, okay, so I'm kind of doing this as a bit of a menu. I'm going to do a starter. Please don't all run screaming out of the door here, because I mentioned the dreaded word statistics. Uh, but I want to talk a little about statistics at the beginning. Okay, and probability too. And then the main course is what chaos is and it's not, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. And then there's a kind of vegetarian alternative, maybe I should say vegan alternative, uh, numerical experiments. And uh, I'm not actually going to do these on a computer. I was thinking of that, doing it kind of in real time. So instead I've just taken screenshots. I think it's, uh, it will look better on the slides. And then the desserts and pictures of chaos. Oh, yeah. And if there's time at the end, uh, a little bit more on visualizing complex dynamics. So that's the yeah, menu. <laughs> statistics. Well, <clears throat> you all know, I think, at least most people know, that statistics doesn't have a very good name amongst the general public and politicians in, in particular. It actually has two meanings that I'd just like to emphasize before I start uh, saying a little bit about statistics. One is data. And that meaning goes back quite a long way, several hundred years, when it, I think it was probably first used in Britain, actually, the um, word statistics. And the other meaning is using mathematics to understand data. And this is really um, a very new topic. We're talking 20th century when statistics really got going, partly because of evolutionary theories, partly because of physics. <coughs> so... As I said, statistics, the real problem with statistics is that it's difficult, uh, as is probability, counterintuitive in some ways, and so it's widely misunderstood. So I thought it might be worth uh, starting off with a few quotations, um, <clears throat> which uh, illustrate kind of the ways in which people misunderstand statistics. So the first is American. Uh, if you can read there, the statistics on sanity are that one out of every four Americans is suffering from some form of mental illness. Think of your three best friends. If they're okay, it's you. Yeah. So that's a, a misunderstanding of the word average mean, but it's kind of common, actually. The next one is more serious, George Bernard Shaw. This is to do with correlation and causality. I'm going to say a little more about this in a minute or two. Statistics show that those who contract the habit of eating, very few survive. Okay? So there, <coughs> that's a really deep misunderstanding that exists everywhere, by the way, about what, what kind of comes first here. So correlation, is does that mean there's causality? Which way does it go? I'll give another example, a, a real example in a minute or two. 
And then, of course, there's just statistics, the data, the dryness side of it. So going back to probably Mark Twain, there's this very famous quote about there's three kinds of lies, lies, down lies, and statistics. And then uh, facts are stubborn, but statistics are more pliable. So you can see the <clears throat> somewhat mixed feelings about statistics. Let me talk a little bit, just a historical kind of note about the uh, causality correlation. I remember when I was growing up in England that there was a big debate about the dangers of cigarette smoking, whether or not it caused lung cancer in particular. So needless to say, the cigarette companies at the time weren't very happy about acknowledging that. So they came up with a good idea uh, that I still remember. It was a kind of hidden causality. What they postulated was the existence of what they called a cancer personality. And someone who had a cancer personality would have two features. First of all, they would be liable to get lung cancer. And secondly, they'd be likely to smoke. Now, it's rather difficult to disprove that. Because if you postulate some unknown cause, a kind of hidden cause, it, it can be tough. However, in this case, it was possible to disprove it. I don't know if you know why. Basically because women started smoking in large numbers much later than men. And so people had the data there. And they could see that, that first of all, there was the up, uptick in smoking for women. And then much later, there was the uptick in cancer rates. So as a result, you could deduce there wasn't a cancer personality, uh, a cancer personality. at least if it, there was, it was solely that of males, not females, which was unlikely. And of course, it was kind of discarded, that hypothesis. So I don't want to disparage necessarily those arguments too much, because actually dealing with data and statistics is really quite difficult. So I don't want to trivialize this. Um, and so we have various ways sometimes of dealing with difficult things. And I should say for this uh, lecture, I kind of think of problems in economics, sociology, uh, politics, actually, as being hard problems. And I think of them as a mathematician as being hard because they almost never have true false answers. Okay. On the other hand, we kind of want to believe they do. So I think one of the kind of features that affects, I mean, I've seen this enormously in Britain um, recently just because of the referendum and following some of the mail, mailing comments, online mailing comments. Everyone wants to believe there's a simple kind of solution here. And not not, people don't really know very much about economics. So what I call, as opposed to the uncertainty principle, what I call the certainty principle operates here, that the observer's certainty is in inverse proportion to their knowledge. And believe me, this really holds. In fact, if you think about it, the more you know about a topic, think about an impending war, for example. The more you know about the details, the less sure you are about what to do. It's very easy, I'm sure you all understand, to make a quick decision if you don't really know much about the subject. Maybe there's one thing that strikes you, right, we'll do that. But when you start to know all the nuances and the structure of a problem, it actually becomes hard to uh, make decisions. So the more you know, in a sense, the harder it is to make decisions. So there has to be a sort of balance there. But this applies to subjects, as I say, like economics, politics, and so on. It doesn't really apply so much in mathematics. So for mathematics is very different from economics in that you look at problems in mathematics and typically the kind of questions you ask are, or the, the kind of theorems you want to think about are either true or they're false. And you can decide which. You go to physics and chemistry, that's no longer true. That's believed to be true by a lot of people. Actually in physics, chemistry and so on, things tend you, you can prove things are false by an experiment, but you can't actually prove things are true. So Newton's laws are not true. They hold to some degree of approximation, but they're certainly not true in an absolute sense. Big difference between maths and physics here. Mathematicians do the easy stuff in a sense. We deal with problems where there are yes-no answers, largely. 
except I make a reservation about that. My own view is that statistics and probability, which are parts of mathematics, are not simple in the way that uh, mathematics is conceptually. There are many things in probability and statistics, many of which you've probably already encountered, that are highly counterintuitive and difficult to understand. So I say they're new subjects, statistics in particular, and we still are in a position where perhaps we can't even teach these subjects to the general public when perhaps they ought to know about statistics so they can assess what's on their TV screen or smartphone or newspaper. So that's the kind of side comment really, but let me say a little bit more now about uh, statistics and probability. So I think it's kind of interesting that it's only about 200 years ago or it is as long as 200 years ago, that probability started to have a big impact in physics. So there's this uh, quote from Laplace, a famous mathematical physics, physicist who says, it's remarkable that a science which began with the consideration of games and chance, advice in some form, uh, should have become the most important object of human knowledge. It's a very strong statement, that, about probability, way before the development of a lot of the statistical methods in physics. That's kind of remarkable, actually, to say that. And then we go something a bit more modern, which is really what I was hinting at a moment ago. Statistical thinking will one day be as necessary for efficient citizenship as the ability to read and write. I'm not quite sure what he means by efficient citizenship, but I think what he's trying to say is when you're confronted with all the information that we have at the moment and with the arguments and debates about various things, it's really helpful to have a critical faculty that is grounded in ideas from statistics. Otherwise, you see data and in a newspaper set, you don't know how to assess it. So just reinforcing that, <coughs> Stephen Jay Gould, an evolutionary biologist, Misunderstanding of probability may be the greatest of all impediments to scientific literacy. Okay, and then again, this one I particularly like. Some people might disagree with it, but I think this is perhaps one of my favorite sayings because it differs so much from what generally I think the general public think. The laws of physics and chemistry are statistical throughout. It's a very profound statement about the laws of physics. So for example, this table is hard. The hardness is coming from statistical averaging kind of properties of the kind of molecules that make up the table. But let me give you one formula here. It's a simple one. The combined gas law, which relates pressure, volume, and temperature to a constant K. I'd like to point out that both pressure and temperature are statistical averages of what's going on. For example, in this room, there are lots of molecules buzzing around the room, and you're kind of doing averages depending on properties of those molecules, velocity, for example, and density, to define things like pressure and temperature. So this is an approximate law, essentially. Of course, it holds to a very high degree of accuracy, typically, but uh, nevertheless, it's relating statistical averages. So that's a little background I just wanted to start with on statistics because I think it will make uh, some of what I'm going to say now a little easier to understand and perhaps you can start to anticipate where I may be going. So I want to start by reviewing uh, what's known as chaos theory. Where did this start? So the first published mathematical use of the word chaos occurs in a maths paper around 1975 by Lee and York. Uh, period three implies chaos. It's a kind of famous paper, American Mathematical Monthly. It's interesting, by the way, the results, and much stronger results, have been published by Soviet mathematicians several years before, but, we'll, but they didn't use the word chaos. Okay. So since the word chaos has been identified in particular with sensitive dependence on initial conditions, and by the extension to the idea that small events can lead to large changes. Okay. So <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. You've probably seen this water because I bought this bottle here at the <coughs> university. And on the front of it, or the back rather now, it has words which are on the very first slide of the talk. Let me read them to you. 
According to chaos theory, the tiny flutter of a butterfly's wing can cause a cyclone on the other side of the world. So that's their kind of part of their kind of <coughs> company message, I guess. So you can't get away from it, even in the uh, restaurants here. That's where I got it in restaurants. Okay. So in fact, the the kind of language started in the early 70s, actually before this paper of Lee and York, uh, with these comments here. So this was uh, a first kind of comment, a suggested title for a talk by Edward Lorenz, who had discovered some interesting things in numerics. And he said, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Okay, so that was said in, so a suggested title for a talk. And then Lorenz actually mentions earlier uh, 63 years, uh, one meteorologist remarked that if the theory were correct, <coughs> one flap of the seagull's wings could change the course of weather forever. So, I want to first of all point out that this has become part of our culture in a way, this idea of sensitive dependence. I'm going to give one or two examples. I've already mentioned the bottled water. Uh, let me give you some other examples. Some of you may have seen one of these movies, the first one uh, in particular, and then the last one. So three movies were called The Butterfly Effect, and indeed in the first one, The Butterfly Effect did appear. It's not so clear in Butterfly Effect 2 and 3. Jurassic Park, you may remember, for those of you who've seen it, the mathematician Ian Malcolm specialised in chaos theory. <laughs> I think he might have been English, right? I'm not sure in the book. I can't remember now, but... Um, Tom Stoppard's play, Arcadia, makes a lot of chaos. Um, it's actually an essay by the dynamicist Robert Devaney, who's at Boston University, on chaos fractals and Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. So it's sort of respectable to say this. Uh, however, there's sometimes, you know, you find that things aren't necessarily that new. There's a short story by Ray Bradbury, which kind of invokes the butterfly effect, that's about 1956, and more interestingly, you find that in 1897, an American physicist, Franklin, uh, coined the term the grasshopper effect. The flight of a grasshopper in Montana may turn a storm aside from Philadelphia to New York. So this is sort of ingrained somewhat in our culture, and it's not necessarily such a new kind of idea. So... <coughs> It's fine, it's a nice metaphor, right? Um, but interestingly, over time, this has evolved, this metaphor, from a kind of question, in a way, to a statement of fact. So let me just illustrate this. So if you go to Wolfram Math World, uh, you'll find the following statement. I think it's still there. I last checked this just a few weeks ago. Due to nonlinearities in weather processes, a butterfly flapping its wings in Tahiti can, in theory, produce a tornado in Kansas. And then it goes on a bit more. This strong dependence of outcomes on a very slightly differing initial conditions is a hallmark of the mathematical behavior known as chaos. And then more recently, and I've changed the words here a bit to protect the identity of the person, who's not in England, by the way. 21st century physicist, therefore, a butterfly flapping its wings in Beijing can set off tornadoes, that's plural, in Kansas a few weeks later. Or wave your hands in the air, and you can be sure that the weather will be completely different several weeks from now than it would have been if you had not done so. <laughs> so blame me if the weather's lousy next week, right? Okay, now, this is where I start to get interesting as a, interested as a dynamicist because, actually, this is kind of not so. Let me highlight things there. So, in theory, the first highlight, there is no theory. Outcomes is important, but not defined properly. The 21st century physicists with therefore, I don't know where that came from because there's no possible logic that could lead to that conclusion, and then wave your hands in the air, and that word, sure, is kind of interesting, right? <laughs> so, as I'm interested in public education in mathematics, I actually think this is kind of something that needs to be addressed, um, and also a correct kind of uh, description of what chaos is and isn't, uh, at least 
I should make an attempt to get that over. So, first of all, it's a good metaphor, the sensitive dependence, but it seems to have evolved now into a popularly accepted scientific fact. Then I would claim, and I'll justify this as we go along, that <coughs> basically it's misleading, it's generally not true, it's bad science, actually I would say very bad science, and when it's true, it's often not interesting. Uh, so although sensitive dependence is an ingredient of chaos, what we call chaos in mathematics, it's not actually the key ingredient for what makes it scientifically and mathematically interesting. So I want to try and tell you what is the key ingredient and why I'm making these statements here. Okay. So first of all, I want to do a little experiment. Uh, it'll be the most boring experiment you've ever been present at. <laughs> It's on chaos and sensitive dependence in the Wolfson Lecture Theatre. Okay? I didn't know where I was coming to give this lecture. So, <clears throat> we are in this room and we actually, there's a wonderful chaotic system that operates in this room. And the chaotic system is comprised of all the molecules of air, nitrogen, oxygen, and so on, water vapor, that are whizzing around this room at high speed, bouncing off the walls and bouncing off each other. It's like a huge game of billiards, right? Bouncing off the walls, very, very complex and chaotic. Okay. So here I am at the front, and I wave my hands around. I'm pretending I'm simulating a butterfly here. And what you will all notice is that nothing happened. So, you know, nothing sort of started off from my hand, grew, and then maybe over in that corner of the room, suddenly the temperature dropped 10 degrees. Or maybe over there, the pressure doubled. Right? Nothing happened. Actually, that growth is rather important in chaotic dynamics. So what did happen? I said it was chaotic. Well, here's what happened. When I was waving my hand, there was a little molecule here that if I hadn't waved my hand, it would have gone straight over to that door. But because I waved my hand, I perturbed its trajectory, and instead, it went over there. So, because of my waving my hand, that did actually affect the position of pretty well all the molecules in this room, because they do whiz around quite fast. So that effect is rapid. Okay. But just that in itself does not necessarily imply any effects. The point is, think about that gas law, temperature, pressure being averages. What happens is that the physics basically averages things out very, very fast. So you don't see rapid fluctuations in temperature or pressure. There will be tiny fluctuations going on all the time because there are vari small variations in density around the room, but there's no dramatic effect, right? Okay. No one's, I think, going to disagree with that experiment. So the question is, and this is important to me, can we actually do an experiment to verify the butterfly effect in the context of, say, weather or some other large system? Okay. Now, for a theory to be scientific, you should be able to disprove it, right? This is kind of the proper kind of thesis. And make predictions as well that go beyond can, in theory, produce a tornado in Kansas. Well, it's kind of blindingly obvious that you cannot do an experiment where a butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing and you then track the effects of that in Kansas uh, two weeks later. More important, you can't repeat the experiment because the conditions, the initial conditions, would be completely different five minutes later, let alone uh, a week or so later. So it's an impossible experiment to even test. Uh, that's the next problem. So it's untestable, and if it's untestable, it means you really uh, don't have any science here. Now, it might sound silly saying this in the UK, but in the US, there's an extremely strong movement denying uh, the idea of climate change. Now, if your weather, basically, is modeled on the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings is going to change the weather, then really maybe the climate science deniers are right. Why is all this money being spent on weather? Because obviously you can't predict anything because you can't kill all the butterflies, for example, to stop them flapping their wings. Okay, so that's the second kind of thing. There's really no science in that. 
Now, <coughs> I'm going to say a little bit more about the original work of Lorenz in a second. Even though at various scales, that is time or space, many parts of the world, natural world, do have sensitive dependence, like the air in this room, it doesn't necessarily affect the predictive accuracy of science. It depends on what you mean by outcomes and what it is you want to measure. Now, let me just say a little note here about the butterfly, uh, the original experiments Lorenz did. He was actually studying convection. Now, I've lived in Houston for a long time, um, and it kind of gets hot there in the summer. And you can measure the kind of energy that is being received, the maximal energy that's being received by, say, a square kilometer of land in Houston in the height of summer if there are no clouds. And we're talking more than a gigawatt of power. So think about a million one kilowatt fires. This is pretty typical of what often is going on in the weather systems. There's huge forcing from either the sun energy or the rotation of the earth. So the perturbations that you're talking about are not small like uh, butterflies flapping. They're, they tend to be huge perturbations. We see your butterflies a bit of noise in the mix. Okay. So large energy changes can occur, and this is basically uh, the kind of stuff Lorenz was looking at, a simple model of convection, which we know can be very unstable. I mean, thunderstorms can develop extremely rapidly. But this is not what we see when we wave our hands, right? And, you know, outside, for example. It doesn't have to be in a room. Okay. So we need an extra property in addition to sensitive dependence. And this property, I think, is kind of remarkable. And it hasn't yet been written about by Tom Stoppard. So maybe might encourage him to write another play. <clears throat> so what is a chaotic system? Well, it certainly has sensitive dependence. I'll give another example in a second. But the long-term outcome, properly interpreted, doesn't depend on the initial conditions. That's the key thing. It's independent. Not a question of sensitivity. It's absolutely the reverse. So properly interpreted means we have to think of the outcomes in terms of statistics and probability. Let me give you, before I uh, start on some more numerical stuff and some pictures, let me give you one instance of sensitive dependence which you're all familiar with. You have two bank accounts. One has zero pounds in it. The other one has one pound in it. That's our kind of initial condition for both systems. And times are tough, so the inflation rate's high, and the interest rates are real good. Uh, basically at 100% every month. So your money doubles every month. Okay. So the system I'm now describing has very sensitive dependence. If you take uh, your two initial bank accounts and apply this interest transformation, one will always be zero, right? Because you start with zero, you end with zero. The other one <coughs> will be doubling every month. After, say, five years, you'll have roughly a million trillion pounds in your bank account. Unfortunately, because of the depreciation in the value of the pound, which is slightly more than 100%, in my model, 110%, you find that the amount of money in real terms that you have at the end is about uh, three hundredths of a penny, or three-tenths of a penny. So uh, the interest really wasn't that helpful, but it's a good example of sensitive dependence. There's no chaos there. The outcome's quite clear in numerical terms. Okay, so I want to <coughs> give you some visualizations here of dynamics and chaos and show you some pictures. Um, I've used a kind of free quotation from Nietzsche here. I've been talking about fiction in a way, but now I want to do some calculations, which I hope show you a lot more about sensitive dependence and chaos. Okay. So, I, I was originally planning to do this on a computer in here, but I wasn't sure that it was going to match with the projector, so I've instead done some screen dumps. So this is the only bit of maths, I'm sorry. Um, ignore the bottom part. We have some a mapping of the complex plane here. It has a certain symmetry. You'll see what I mean by that in a second. Uh, and I'm going to iterate it in the way that most of you are probably familiar with. We start with a point, apply the algorithm, get a new point, and keep going and see what happens. If you want to write it out in real numbers, you, you get very complicated expressions, but in complex numbers, it's fairly simple. Okay, it's just a simple model. Right. So <coughs> the first image I'm going to show 
shows the result of, actually I think it's a quarter of a million points plotted for this map. So I ignore the first few points that I plot and then plot the rest. So, and it should be, you know, I've changed some of this, this has 10 file symmetry. So this is what you get. It's a lot of points uh, distributed in this case approximately around a disk. Uh, Unlike what one tends to be taught in beginning analysis courses in the university, the uh, sequence you've got does not converge to a point. It just kind of seems to move around randomly. Uh, and we get an object which seems to have some symmetry here, tenfold symmetry. Uh, <coughs> so I'm going to do this experiment again. I started here with the initial point being x is a tenth, y is a fifth. So now I'm going to add to the original x coordinate um, I think the amount I add is one million, maybe a hundred thousand. It's small, right? And I'm going to repeat the experiment. So I only change the x-coordinate by a tiny bit. Now you have to watch that picture carefully because I'm about to go to the next one. You notice it's different? Clearly different. The points are distributed in a different way. Okay? So that indicates something's going on in terms of sensitivity. A very small change just resulted in a picture which actually looks the same. If I ask you after a minute or two, was that the first or the second picture, you're probably not going to be able to tell me. In fact, it's the second picture, I think. But, uh, okay. So now let's look at this a slightly different way. Let's just plot a few points to try and get an idea of what's happening. So in this case, I just plot the first uh, 100 points. I make the dots a bit larger so you can see them. Um, there's just 100 points plotted, and now you see that they're just spread out mainly in this region here. There's one or two there. So there's no structure, right? You don't see the structure if you just do a few points. If maybe I do 1,000 points, <coughs> then you're beginning to see the structure, okay? And now I want to look at this a little more carefully. Uh, and talk about this sensitive dependence with a little experiment here. The interesting thing about this is that you'll see that this sensitive dependence uh, is really something that shows up kind of quickly. So what I do is, this was computed on a, on a screen of about 2400 by 1600 pixels, so about, say, 1600 by 1600. So if the pixels, if the actual points we're looking at are very close together, say within a millionth, I think, is how we start them, uh, but therefore they're in the same pixel, I'm going to uh, color a block of 3 by 3 pixels yellow. And then if I iterate and they move away after a while from each other, so I'm simultaneously iterating them here. Uh, so when they've separated, I'll, I'll color the trajectory of one point red and the other point blue. So if you get the idea, I'm going to be iterating two points together. If they stay close, I'll color a square enclosing the points yellow. When they start to move apart, then the separate bits will be done red and blue, depending on uh, where the squares are. Okay. So let's start off. So if you look at this, there's a little yellow dot up there. hope everyone can see that. So then I do another iteration. This is more fun in real time. That's the second one. And then I can't keep going like this because it takes a long time doing the screen dumps in the right way for this. So I do five points. One, two, three, four, five. And they're still in roughly a straight line. Still, they're all yellow, right? Uh, and then I do another six, I think, or seven points. And if you look, you won't be able to see this, but this point here has a little bit of red at the bottom and a bit of blue at the top. They're already separating. This is after 12 points. And so now I'm going to do another 12, I think, points. And then you'll see they're kind of all over the place. Uh, and they've separated definitely now. In fact, they've got red points there and the blue points. You can't see them very well here, I'm afraid, because the lights are where the blue points are gone. I can't even see them on this. But yeah, there's blue points up here. I'm sorry about that. They were definitely... Those are close at the front. Close at the front. You might be able to see there's blue points around here. Yeah. Oh, you can see them better. Good, good. Okay. So, okay, so it's a bit of a mess, the picture now. So what I'm going to do is wipe all those points off the screen, but I don't know now which was the last one I plotted. 
but there will be a red-blue pair there, and then I'm going to take that point and iterate it another 50 times, say. So uh, let's do that. Uh, and this is, hold on, it's being awkward, this one. Okay, try again. There we go. So you can see this. You'll see that the red points are sort of round here and there, and the blue points are there. The interesting thing about this is that the map that I'm using has washed away the history. If you look at this picture, you cannot deduce that the original points were very close together. So this is one feature that is uh, very much part of chaotic dynamics. Technically, it's known as uh, rapid decay of correlations. So the points move apart, they're no longer correlated. Okay. So let me give you a little demonstration of coloring now, because I'm really moving slowly towards this outcome uh, point of view. So what I've done here is kind of color-coded. So I've done a two and a half million uh, points I've plotted. And what I've done is I've color-coded the pixels according to the number of times they've been hit. So there's a scale here. I've only put the top and the bottom numbers in. So one notice and two is kind of red. Black means I haven't hit the point at all. But if I iterate quite a bit, then I'm actually getting into the yellow zone there. Okay? So let me do a little bit more here, and then I'll interpret this. So this is 7.5 million now. And you can begin to see the yellows much more clearly. Uh, and if you <coughs> see it on the screen there, we're beginning to move into purples there. And so let's really go to town on this and do 330 million. There's no special thing about the colors here. They're just uh, randomly chosen. So here you've got lots of colors. And you see the blues here. These areas here have a lot of blue. This is a, a kind of probability chart. What it's saying is that if you're in a black region, the chance of your point being there when you iterate is zero. If you're in a red region, the chance of your point being there is very low. But on the other hand, and then as you move down the scale, the chance of finding points in those pixels increases until you reach the blue regions here, uh, which there's some there, some there. And then the probability is very high. So this is actually a, a kind of statistical image. It's giving you the probabilities of being at certain points in this object. And this is a good thing to have because the object itself is extremely complex uh, in terms of its fine structure. It doesn't show on this picture, but I'll show you one or two in a minute. And so what we're after here is some kind of statistics of what's going on on this uh, picture, and the best, uh, or this image. And the best thing we can do is <coughs> probabilities. <coughs> so let me give you another demonstration of um, sensitive dependence. Okay. So I'm giving you some visualizations here because what I really want you to do is to go out and think about the economy, for example, and then come up with all the climate and give a really nice visualization which conveys what's going on in a really complicated system, okay, using visual methods rather than just pie graphs and bar charts of one sort or another. Something that shows the dynamics of the economy, which would be nice. So this is basically what I'm working on part of the time in complex dynamics. So here's another illustration. This uses symmetry just to show what's going on. So that picture <coughs> I was showing you had a tenfold symmetry, meaning you can rotate it through a tenth of a turn and you get the same picture. And notice, by the way, those pictures were symmetric, but I do lots and lots of iterations. And also there's reflections about axes. So here, what I've done is I've marked all the axes of symmetry of the picture. Let me make that clearer. That's the, just the dot picture there. So you see, if I reflect in this line, I basically move the picture into itself, ignoring the fact that the dots aren't quite the same top and bottom. And if I rotate by a tenth of a turn, I'll move this to that, and that to that, and so on. So these wedges kind of delineate the symmetry somehow. <coughs> so now, what I want to do is, let's go back to this, I'm going to look at each of the pixels in this square, and let's say there's about a million, it was probably about a thousand by a thousand pixels when I did this, so there'll be a thousand pixels in there, so I take a pixel in this region, and I'll just map it once, 
So then I would color that pixel according to where it ended up. So if it didn't move out of this wedge, I would keep that color, the blue. If it moved over there, I'd color it red. If I move it there, I'll color it that sort of greeny yellow color. And over there, yellow. You get the idea, I color it according to where it ends up. Okay, I'm just iterating once. So I do the whole lot, and that's what I see. But what you can see here is that these points in the blue region all went over into the red region. I'll leave the original colors here, and then various things happen there. These points uh, went over to there, and the purples went there, and so on. Okay, that's just once. <coughs> so let's iterate it again three times. So now you can see that that region, well, outside is interesting. It's obviously getting rapidly complicated there, but this region is beginning to get chopped up uh, quite a bit. This is a bit slower because it's tenfold symmetry, but I kind of wanted to show you this. This is nine times now, and now it's getting a little difficult to decide where points go. See, if you look closely at the pixels here, uh, you know, you, you really need a much better resolution to figure out which kind of wedge they're going into, and clearly being very close to another point there, you can go somewhere quite different. So let's do it 45 times, and now it's really getting very difficult, it's just a mess, though you still see some structure in there. Uh, so let's do it a bit more, because this is, two, this is about 250 times. This takes quite a long time to mix up things here. And that looks pretty random, right? So let's blow up a little piece here, and this is what I do. I take a very small rectangle there, and I'll blow it up. And that's the way the pixels are in that rectangle. And that's pretty random, in fact. Um, there's no real structure in that. So you see, at this point, you see that it's now very difficult to see where a, a pixel is going to go to. If you're on this one, you go to, a, uh, I'm not sure what color that is, but you go to blue there and red there and some purpley color there and then mauve, yellow, like that. So this is an illustration of sensitive dependence, very simple visual illustration. <coughs> so what this is about is saying that this object, which is an example of something that's chaotic, does have structure, and the structure is this kind of probability, or measure is the technical term. And so what I'm doing here is a slightly more careful coloring of the object to kind of highlight the fact that this has a lot of structure sitting inside it. Okay. So this is the outcome, right? When you have chaos, you end up with something which has a rich statistics going along with it, which... Um, you can actually understand in terms of probability. So this is a detail from that object, and uh, you can see there's various lines and curves that are coming out of the fact that this is a fairly geometric object. So let me show you some more pictures. Now, I brought along a couple of pictures to show you because you lose most of the detail there. So these are what are known as Chromalux pictures, so I'll have them up at the end. <coughs> and if you want to have a look, do. Uh, they're robust. I can actually take them. I, I only got these just done for this talk. They're printed on aluminium. And uh, you can apparently pour bleach over them and rub it, and the picture won't be damaged. Not that I'm intending to do that, but uh, more important, people can put their hands on them, and you can wipe the fingerprints off. A lot of prints... Uh, very delicate and difficult to transport. So I've got two pictures here. I'll tell you when the other one comes up. This is a very old picture. This went in the book that uh, John mentioned. Okay. There's a detail. But what I, again, want to stress here, that these have very rich structure, these kind of objects. So <coughs> John mentioned I've been in Australia. <coughs> so I want to show you just a few pictures here, uh, just to illustrate <coughs> some of the rather remarkable things that come up when you're doing these things. So when I went to Australia, one of the characteristic features of it was that out in the bush there were an awful lot of blowflies. <clears throat> and when you got out of the car, they kind of all charged at you. Well, this particular <coughs> picture here is actually of a repeating pattern. It's actually defined on a torus, or a square if you like, and using a random dynamical system. So there's not actually a formula. You're basically kind of tossing a coin at each stage to decide where you're going to go. And it turns out this one, uh, I was able to adjust it to get it to look like uh, this. So 
this one has actually been used as the front cover of a book uh, by Borovnik, who's at Manchester, on mathematical cognition. I mean, it's just a part of it. It's a repeating pattern, in fact. <coughs> um, so in fact, most of the interesting patterns here, I think, are repeating patterns. So let me show you another one. <coughs> These have various symmetries. But the two I've just shown you have a sort of biological kind of sense to them. But if you're interested in repeating patterns, these patterns only have really glide reflection symmetries. That means you move halfway and reflect, basically, where the halfway is half a tile length, and then reflect, and you get the pattern back. So glide reflection symmetries are very nice, actually, to <clears throat> play with if you want to get effects, because you can often get some interesting uh, dynamic effects appearing in the patterns. So this is an old one <coughs> that I did in Houston called Armies of the Night. When I did it, uh, for some reason I was thinking of a book by Norman Mailer called Armies of the Night. So I called it that, even though I didn't see the connection. But if you've ever been to Houston, you'll realize what this is. It's a picture of cockroaches scurrying across the floor, which you have <laughs> these very large cockroaches in Houston. So there's lots of them moving across. Now this is, there's a lot of structure, this pattern, I should point out. It's constructed using dynamics, and really the coloring's quite complex here, but if you look carefully, you'll see that the kind of motif that we have here, if you translate it to the right, colors have changed. So the uh, color there, for example, is quite different from the color there, and simply the blue there goes to a red. So this is a, what's known as a two-color repeating pattern, Originally, these were classified by a textile person back in the 1930s from Manchester. He classified the two-color pattern, repeating patterns, I think around 45 of them. And they, they really kind of have nice, rich effects. Um, let me show you a detail from this, just to highlight this. You see there's a lot of symmetry in this pattern. There's a line of symmetry down here. And when you flip about the line, you're interchanging colors. If you forget the colors, then uh, um, the symmetry is um, you know, not too hard to write down. There's lines here of symmetry, uh, no lines across here, and I think there's no rotation symmetries in this picture. So CM is the basic uh, symmetry type. So uh, like I said, I've been in Australia. One of the things about Australia is that there's lots of beautiful sandstone rock, and Aboriginal carving. So this was a little bit motivated by Australia. Uh, you'll again notice this is a two-color pattern. It's just a little section of a repeating pattern, and I played around with it a bit. This is a line here of symmetry, and when you reflect, you flip the colors. Uh, that color goes over there. Okay, I was asked once, this is another two-color pattern, by the way, which has a rather strange quality, but... Uh, <laughs> I was asked, I have been asked once or twice, why there's that hole in it, and I'm not going to answer that question. But I can tell you that I had a, when I was in Rice, there was a postdoc who's now, Chris Pitt, who's now at uh, Exeter, uh, and we worked together on various things. And this picture was above his desk, and he's taken it back to uh, Germany with him, so he liked it anyway. It's actually, a lot of these things are visually slightly disturbing, uh, this particular sort of picture here. This is an interesting one. This is a two-color pattern. Uh, and notice that it's light here, dark there. So there's a symmetry line there, such that when you reflect, you interchange colors. So what you should do is to stare hard at this picture. And it's called Ed Box Design. And then I'll go to the next picture. So what I've done is basically rotated it. And you notice how it's exactly the same picture. All right, same picture. Of course, it's a simple optical illusion that you're thinking of the sun as sitting up there on the top left. And so this piece, which is now lit, is kind of looking like a, a little hill there. There's a depression, whereas before, the effect was quite different. And there you saw that this was lit up, and that was in the shadow. Okay. So this is another example of uh, some of the effects you can get. <coughs> this is slightly holographic, the picture. It looks as though the central cross is sort of separated from the background. Okay. This is another picture I bought along. It's a two-color quilt. I'll have that out at the end, so I won't say any more about that. 
And then some different sorts of systems here, what are known as extended dynamical <coughs> systems. I'm afraid all the details lost in this, or most of it for you, but actually if you look at the fine detail, this looks exactly like a, a kind of very sophisticated computer chip um, in the way it's uh, set up. So this involves some randomness and determinism in its construction. Uh, this one was actually a wedding present. I suddenly got this phone call from some people in Louisiana, I think. Uh, father was getting married and they wanted to give him a present and somehow they come across some of my web pages and they like this picture, which again has very fine detail on it, most of which you probably can't see there, but uh, so that ended up as a wedding present a few years ago. And then finally, uh, kind of something a bit different where there's some symmetry but not quite clear. This was uh, really for a philosopher at the University of Houston who had just written a book about art and uh, you know, the kind of questions about whether or not some things are. I make no pretensions about this being art. I just kind of enjoy doing some of the pictures. So let me finish off in the last... I'm supposed to finish 10 minutes early, aren't I? Uh, well, let me go quickly through this. I haven't really said much about visualization, but I'm interested in kind of complex systems. So as I say, this order here between that quote... Um, so let me just show you one or two things. This originally rose out of some work with Dave Broomhead. So the idea is you take some complex system and you feed it into some other system and you try and affect the dynamics of that system and uh, uh, then do some pictures and try and interpret them. So all the observations here are averages. So these are very simple pictures, but the dots in this case, this is a little bit like X-ray crystallography, spectroscopy. Um, Basically, those dots are indicating various patterns of synchronization that are occurring in this, in this case, it's a six-cell system. There's another example, another one. It's kind of interesting when you break the symmetry here. So this is an example where there's seven nodes and there's a kind of broken symmetry. And a more extreme example where the kind of connection structure is fixed. And again, this is kind of representing dynamics there. Uh, another example of patterns of synchronization. Again, very fine detail in the center here. Uh, and then, final comment about insensitive dependence on initial conditions. With these sort of objects, you can start with the same initial condition and run the program, and each time you can get one from a finite set of objects. Here are three examples. So, I think I've uh, <coughs> covered all I can do today. So, uh, main kind of message here is that uh, Chaos is a bit more than sensitive dependence. Really, the interest is on what's happening on the kind of outcome, if you like. And the way to think of that is in terms of statistics and probability. And surprisingly, the results can be sometimes quite attractive as well as kind of interesting. I mean, the, I haven't really talked about doing statistics on these things, but you can certainly do that in a, in a major way. So thank you very much for your time.